going on. If you have a Bible, you might open it with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 that we're going to explore today. I apologize for this. Um, Daniel chapter 2 is is a puzzling yet inspiring chapter. For lack of a better way of saying it, it engages our minds and challenges our souls as much as any chapter in the book of Daniel. We've been making our way through the book of Daniel, and as we've done that, uh, we've seen several truths so far. We've talked about humility, right? That when I exalt myself, God will humble me, but when I humble myself, Jesus will lift me up. We've talked about character. We've talked about courage. We've talked about all kinds of things. Today, we're going to dive into chapter 2, and you probably thought we were never going to get here because we've spent so much time in chapter 1, but chapter 1 is really the foundation for the rest of the book. So from here on out, we'll be about a chapter a week uh, until we get in the later chapters, and then some of those chapters we may squeeze together. As we read chapter 2 today, it's a long chapter, so I'm going to tell you right up front how I'm going to do this. I'm going to spend a good amount of time just reading it through and giving bits, tiny bits of explanation. And then after we make our way through the whole chapter, I'm going to come back. I'm going to ask us three questions, give us one big conclusion, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. So simple, simple as I know how to make it. So two things that happen, though, before we start reading the chapter. One, I've told you this, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. The book of Daniel has a sort of pulling back of the curtain of time that happens. And we really see that begin to open up in chapter two, because Daniel Uh, interprets a vision that Nebuchadnezzar has that covers literally hundreds of years of history. And so we see a pulling back of the the curtain of time. You kind of see history from outside of time from God's perspective. The other thing that's just very much worth noting is that in Daniel chapter 2 verse 4 through chapter 7 verse 28, the language of the book changes. Now, in your Bible, it's in English. You're thankful for that, aren't you? In fact, aren't you glad your entire Bible's in English? Because if it were not, you would have trouble understanding it, right? It would all be Greek to you kind of thing. Except in this case, Daniel starts with Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, Daniel 1, Hebrew, but chapter 2, verse 4 through 728 switches to Aramaic, which would have been the language of Babylon and sort of the dominant world language of the time. I think it tells us something about the missional intent, the intent of God to have his people impact the nations of the world and the kingdoms of the world. And frankly, can you imagine there are still places on the planet today that don't have the Bible in their own language? Because that exists. That's a real deal. And there are translators who actively work today to understand languages of the world and make translations of the Bible so that people who have yet to hear the name of Jesus can hear and understand who God is and how much God loves them. It's a, it's a beautiful missional reminder of why we do what we do. Now that said, I want to begin reading in chapter 2. I'm going to pick up verse 1, and I'm just going to tell you, he begins with, and I got this in your notes, but I didn't make blanks because I want to fly through this. Sleepless nights. You, you've had sleepless nights, haven't you? So did Nebuchadnezzar. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, right, had dreams, plural. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. 
So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers, all, all, the, all the wise people of his day, all, all of the servants in his kingdom who, who were supposed to get this stuff. He summoned them to tell them what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I don't know what it means. So just pause there. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man on the planet in this day and time. His nation rules the rest of the known world and certainly that part of the world. He is the most powerful man in the most powerful kingdom on planet Earth. He has everything the world says you need. He has power, his needs are met, his gardens are said to have been among the most, well, they're one of the wonders of the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He's got all the beauty you can imagine, he's got fame, he's got fortune. What does he lack? Sleep, apparently. And I think key to understanding Daniel chapter 2, and frankly, the rest of the book of Daniel, is to read it with what I'm about to tell you in mind. Daniel stands in direct contrast to Nebuchadnezzar. He has none of what the king has. And he's the most peaceful guy in the book. The king is troubled Why? Well, now we see some unreasonable demands. Think of it this way. Verse 4 says, The astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Now, if you were one of the magi, the wise men, the, the, any of those fellas or ladies that were serving the king in this way, they were likely all fellas, but different day, different era, different time. If you were serving God and more importantly, or maybe just as importantly, serving the king in this capacity. And he said, I had a dream. It troubled me. Tell me what it means. You would naturally say, tell us the dream. The king knows this. So this is what the king says, right? The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I've firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces. Indeed, he was troubled. And your house is turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. And once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. And the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time. You're stalling. Now I want you to just catch that he says you're stalling here because, because Daniel's going to stall in a little bit, but with purpose, with prayer. And the king's gracious at that point. Here, he's pretty furious. He says, hey, you're stalling. King answered, I'm certain you're trying to gain time. You realize this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you. You have conspired 
to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. So you get the idea, right? The test here is if you can tell me what I dreamed, then I will believe that the interpretation is true. But if you cannot, I will have you cut up and burned into pieces, essentially. Now, the burning, that's really more the next chapter, right? But, but he's basically saying, I will destroy you, I will destroy your home, I will destroy your family. Sounds just slightly unreasonable to me. So then we get a section that just reminds us that this is impossible without God. Even the uh, pagan worshipers know that, right? Verse 10 says, the astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. When the, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. That verse is worth underlining. That the gods do not live among humans. I'm sure the little g gods do not. And my God did. Verse 12, this made the king so angry and furious, they ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. And so the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. So you get the picture. Daniel wasn't even included in this initial phase, this group of people who were coming to advise the king. Daniel was not there. They sent executioners to find these people. It said, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact, which is sort of emphasized throughout the book. Again, the king has everything you would think people want, humanly speaking, but he doesn't have the wisdom to understand his own dream, because ultimately that's only found with Daniel's God. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for, this is significant. What does he ask for here? Verse 16 says he asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Remember, when the other guys stalled, the king was furious they stalled. Now Daniel asked for time. Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Again, here, them called by their Hebrew names, but from here on in the book, they'll be called by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I had a whole outline I wrote of this chapter about the tests that Daniel went through and the tests that Nebuchadnezzar went through, and then I scrapped it and wrote a whole nother sermon. But this is one of those tests. Is he, gonna, is he just going to protect himself and his three friends? Or if God gives him the answer, is he going to stand up for all of the astrologers, all of the wise, all who are pagan worshipers? Is he going to protect them as well? You get the picture, though. He's facing certain death unless the impossible can happen. Thankfully, God specializes in just such circumstances, right? 
During the night, verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision, and Daniel praised the God of heaven. And we get a, a, a song of worship here, essentially. Daniel said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others, which is somewhat crucial to understanding the dream. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we have asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, who's the executioner, by the way, right? Whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. Now, this is not the first time the king has met the exiles from Judah. But here he is being prompted again by others to understand what they understand. So the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, again, Daniel means God is my judge. The name Belteshazzar refers to the worship of the pagan god Bel. Daniel reminds us over and over, God is my judge. My name is Daniel. The king asked Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, again, echoing the other wise men and astrologers, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner. By the way, you notice these lists? They're like this, there's a whole category of people. These, these magi, these wise men, these, these astrologers, these enchanters. They just keep throwing out labels of these things people do. They're all spiritually wise people, but they make use of, in a lot of senses, what today we would think of as illusion, to make people think they have answers when in reality they don't have answers, hence the name magician, right? That they really have no answers. Daniel replies, verse 27, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but... Verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries, I love that, the revealer, God is the revealer of mysteries. And actually, interestingly, we'll get into this later in the book, but the names of God are plentiful throughout the book of Daniel. They describe all the things he does, the revealer of mysteries being one of them. The revealer of mysteries has showed you what is going to happen. Verse 30 is, for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. So the next section is going to give us the dream and the meaning, right? But I want you to pause before, if you've read Daniel before, and most of you probably have, 
you have some idea that the dream is this statue and there are different sections of the statue and the different sections of the statue represent different kingdoms to come. But Nebuchadnezzar does not know any of this. He just knows that he had this dream and that there's this giant statue and that the giant statue is toppled by a rock. What is the most logical conclusion you would draw if you're King Nebuchadnezzar? I am the statue, and someone is coming for me. No wonder he was troubled. He believed that this dream represented his downfall. And in essence, it does but not in the way he was necessarily fearing. So, Daniel gives him the dream and its meaning. Verse 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. This is, by the way, where the phrase feet of clay, if you ever hear that kind of, you know, if you have feet of clay, it's sort of an unstable foundation, that, that originates here. In fact, there are a bunch of phrases like that that, that that we use in modern language today that originate in the Bible, handwriting on the wall comes out of Daniel chapter 5. We'll get there in a bit, a few weeks. He says, while you were watching the giant statue with the feet of partial clay, part, part of partial iron, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. And the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we, again, Daniel puts himself in place to protect the entire the entire cabal of, of wise men and enchanters and astrologers, something he did not have to do. He saves the lives of many of these pagan worshipers who serve the king when he doesn't have to. He said, now we will interpret it to the king. Now again, I just want to pause here. If I'm the king, I'm thinking, I'm the head of gold, I'm the feet of clay, and something not cut out by human hands is going to topple me. The gods have it out for me. If I'm Nebuchadnezzar, this is what I'm thinking. Here's the interpretation, verse 37. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. Daniel is saying, my God has you ruling as you are today in the place you are today. That is because of my God, the God of heaven. 
In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. And wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. And you are that head of gold. And after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. And next, a third kingdom, one of bronze will rule over the whole earth. So you get this idea. There, there, there are these four succeeding kingdoms represented by these, the head of gold, the, the, mid, the upper body of silver, the mid, you know, lower, I don't know, second quarter from the bottom of bronze, right? And then the fourth kingdom, strong as iron, verse 40 says, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. And just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. And yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. And as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom, like four kingdoms from now, will be partly strong, or three kingdoms from now, if you count Nebuchadnezzar's as the first, will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw, the iron mixed with baked clay. So the people will... Now, at this point, you're almost ignoring what I'm saying because it's into the details of part clay, part iron, part what. And certainly Nebuchadnezzar by this point is just going, whoo! Because the rock's not going to smash the head. And there are a bunch of kingdoms to come, and Nebuchadnezzar's not dumb. He's like, I'm not going to live forever. This is, basically, this is basically saying that I'm good. Nothing to worry about. Just as you saw, verse 43, the iron mixed with baked clay. So the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Just pause there. I find this fascinating. This is the pulling back of the curtain of time, right? That from God's perspective, Nebuchadnezzar is given a dream to say that that he's about to see history unfold. He tells him about four kingdoms to come, right? Note that each successive kingdom is inferior to the one before it. Hence, gold, silver, bronze. Apparently, if there were four medals we gave out at the Olympics, it would be gold, silver, bronze, and then part clay, part iron, right? Because that's that's the picture you get. Gold, silver, bronze, and then part iron, part clay. Now notice that the medals get inferior, less value as you move down. That their values drop, but by the time you're into the feet, they're partly of iron, their strength goes up. Four kingdoms, We would know from history that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is the kingdom of Babylon, the head of gold. That the silver chest and arms are Medo-Persia, led by Cyrus the Great, whom Daniel served when Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom fell with his grandson essentially in power. The stomach and thighs of bronze were Greece, led by Alexander the Great. And the legs of iron with the legs of iron with feet of iron and clay are the Romans, right? Led by the Caesars, right? Caesar Augustus, Nero, etc., etc., etc. And there's this stone 
cut out not by human hands that's going to strike the statue. I just find this fascinating. Yet I think that a lot of the time, especially those of us who really enjoy the book of Revelation, we, we love these couple of verses because of the prophecy involved. And I just want to mention, don't blow off prophecy. The prophecy is of value. But don't be consumed only with the prophecy. Now, the thing that's fascinating to me is that the prophecy is going to tell us that there's going to be a kingdom and another kingdom and another kingdom and another kingdom. And verse 44 says, in the time of those kings, the fourth kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. God just told Nebuchadnezzar when Jesus was going to come. In the time of the fourth kingdom, the Romans. Some of my super prophecy friends would tell us that, that when you get to the bottom with the feet of clay, there's a distinction and a jump in time, and that that's really about the end of time, and that this up till now has been about, about the history before Jesus, and you get sort of a split, and I just don't find it in the text. I'm just being honest. It's like one statue. I don't see a separation of time here. I think he's just talking about the Romans. That's me. But verse 44 does say, in the time of those kings, I'm reading it again, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Daniel concludes, the great God, my great God, he would add, has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true. Its interpretation is trustworthy. So King Nebuchadnezzar at this point is thinking, wow. I mean, honestly, I think King Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, I didn't think anybody could do this. I thought I was just going to kill all these people. Like, wow, he actually told me what the dream was. And whew, it's not the rock coming after me. I'm the gold. I'm not the whole statue. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and honored, ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. This is actually an act of worship. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar on one hand appears to move closer to Daniel's God, almost a profession of faith sort of thing, but I think not truly because I think honestly that comes later in the book. And the reason I think he doesn't really bring himself to a place of worship of Daniel's God has to do with the way this ends. The king placed Daniel in a high position, lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler of the entire province of Babylon. He placed him in charge of all its wise men. Just take note there, right, that, that Daniel is promoted. He's given great influence again. At Daniel's request, moreover, it says, verse 49, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So now Daniel becomes the guy next to the king to give the king, to speak to the king kind of thing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego set up as 
administrators over the province of Babylon, if Nebuchadnezzar really got what the dream was getting at, I don't think you would read this next. Again, we put in these chapter breaks. Those are human in origin. But read the next verse. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Cubits a foot and a half. So we're talking about 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. And set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He has a dream about a giant statue. Daniel interprets it for him tells him that the statue is going to fall, that it represents the kingdoms of the world to come. And Nebuchadnezzar's immediate response is to promote Daniel, and his second response is to build a giant statue and order that everybody shall fall down at its feet. We would infer that the giant statue is of him, made of entirely of gold. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar passed the test at all. At every moment that Daniel is tested in this chapter... He gives honor to God. And at every, moment that Dan, that Nebuch, at every moment Daniel is tested, he brings honor to God. At every moment that Nebuchadnezzar is tested, he brings honor to himself. Which I think is really the setup for what I want us to ask today. Three big questions, one big conclusion. And drive us to Jesus. Again, Daniel seems to have everything that Nebuchadnezzar does not. Daniel has satisfaction and faith and hope and wisdom and humility and security. That's what I want in a world where everybody else wants what Nebuchadnezzar has. Glory and fame and fortune. Three big questions, one big conclusion. Question number one, will I find my satisfaction in myself or in Jesus? Plain and simple. I don't know if you know Jesus or not. I hope you do. If you don't, you're going to have a chance to receive him, receive his mercy, receive his grace, receive his forgiveness here in just a minute. But I think one of the greatest questions of life is where will I find my satisfaction? Nebuchadnezzar had everything, yet he was deeply troubled. In fact, in Nebuchadnezzar, we see most of how the world has reacted to the pandemic, if you think about it. Nebuchadnezzar has human insecurity. He's shaken and troubled at his core. And his reaction is human hostility. Tell me if you don't see those things play out every single day on social media. Human insecurity, human hostility. Nebuchadnezzar has everything the world says you should want, and yet he's insecure and hostile. Daniel, on the other hand, has what Nebuchadnezzar does not, because he knows the God of heaven. He knows the revealer of mysteries. He knows the God who's behind the curtain, who pulls it back and is in charge of it all. Daniel has security because he has his God. Now, we would know his God four centuries later as the rock that came and toppled the kingdoms of the world. But I think it's worth just saying that at every test of the chapter, Daniel is satisfied with God 
And Nebuchadnezzar is not. Will I find my satisfaction in myself or in Jesus? Because Nebuchadnezzar found his satisfaction in himself, and that's proven no better than chapter 3, verse 1, where he sets up a statue, essentially, of himself and asks everybody else to worship it. Question number two. Will I find my hope in human kingdoms or Jesus' kingdom? Again, pull back the curtain of history. What do we see? We see Four kingdoms outlined in the statue, right? The kingdom of the Babylonians, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the kingdoms of Greece, and the kingdom of Rome. And it says that in the time of those kings, the kingdom of Rome, God sets up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That's powerful if you think about it. The basic question I want to ask you is, where is your hope really found. If every four years your hope gets up and then down, you know that wave we do in American life every four years where, where half the country is really excited and half the country is really disappointed? Now, I'm not saying we're not citizens of this world. I'm not saying we shouldn't vote. You've heard me over the years. I Like, be good citizens, vote, do the things we should do, but don't find your hope in human kingdoms. If you do, you will be disappointed. The Nebuchadnezzars of this world, right or left, will never satisfy us because they are not God. If your hope is rooted in the human kingdom, you will end up like Nebuchadnezzar, sleepless and angry. But when your hope is rooted in God's sovereignty and God's kingdom, you end up with what Daniel has, wisdom, peace, humility, love, tact, glory for God. And the more focused and obsessed I am with the outcomes that I want to happen in this world, the more dissatisfied, the less hope I'm going to really find because I end up in a place where I put my hope in the wrong things. Again, this doesn't mean I give up on this world. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned this world. But rather, this story is telling us that God would plunge headfirst into this world to save it from all the false hope we put our false hopes in. Essentially, over the next 10 weeks or so, we will celebrate what this chapter is telling us, that God will enter into our world to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That is at a very big picture, outside of history, outside of time picture, what happens with Christmas. Of course, it doesn't go the way you would expect exactly. Because if you think about it, when Jesus came... What kind of Messiah did they expect? Political. Exactly. What kind of Messiah did they want? Political. I mean, even when Jesus ascends after the cross, after the resurrection, after the three years, after the teachings, after the miracles, after everything about starting a church, he's about to ascend into heaven and acts. <laughs> the disciples ask him, hey, but when are you going to set up your kingdom? I'm just, we're just... We're just, we thought we were going to be 12 dudes with 12 thrones, and we just want to know when the politics start. When are you going to overthrow the Romans? 
This is what we want to know. Humans are always obsessed with this aspect. The question again, will I find my hope in human kingdoms or Jesus' kingdom? One last question, number three. Will I find my security? Or I wrote in my notes, confidence. Will I find my security? Will I find my confidence in what I cannot do or in what Jesus can? This is strategic and important for every human being to work through. There are limits on what I can do. The astrologers, the wise men, the magi, all those guys were all brought to the place of going, no human being can pull this off. And Daniel says, you're right, but I know a God who can, and he prays, and God does. Verse 11, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among the humans. Verse 27, no, this is Daniel, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he's, sh- he's shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. That in the time, verse 44, of those kings of clay and those kings of iron, those feet of clay, feet of iron, that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. And it will crush all the kingdoms of the world and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. We tend to long for that kingdom to be, if we're honest, a rock and not an act of grace. But if Jesus did what this pictures right out of the gate, you and I wouldn't be sitting here today. I just don't think. Because we needed what Jesus offered. And the big question we end up essentially asking is, who or what is the rock? And is the rock rigid the way a rock usually is? And did the kingdoms topple the way this dream would make it sound like they topple. When Jesus is crucified and resurrected, did the Romans topple at that moment in time? If you know history, the answer is no. But were the Romans toppled? Yes. Do the Romans still rule the world today? Absolutely not. And yet here we are, billions of people 2,000 years later, worshiping a king who sets himself as a king of kings, who rules a kingdom not of this world, his kingdom is still expanding. And Rome is a beautiful place to visit. So who or what exactly is the rock? This is telling us essentially that a king is coming whose kingdom will never end. In essence, I think this is telling me, and this is the one big conclusion, that in the end, I think I heard Chuck Swindoll first say this, so I'm I'm just admitting I'm stealing this from Chuck. In the end, God wins, and we win when Jesus wins. This is what this is saying. In the end, God wins. It's what the book of Daniel says, in the end, God wins. It's what the book of Revelation says, in the end, God wins. And who wins when Jesus wins? We win when Jesus wins. Do we win because of our own merits? No. Do we win because we're so good? No. Do we win because our kingdom is better than everybody else's? No. We win because Jesus wins. It's all grace. 
And when Jesus wins, not only does he topple the kingdoms of this world, but all of the pains of this world. Jesus came to topple more than Rome and Greece, more than Babylon and Media Persia. Jesus came to topple sinful hearts and pride-filled lives. Jesus came to topple all the self-oriented problems that exist in our world, all the emotional trauma, all the physical disability, all the physical sickness, all the domestic conflicts, all of the international wars, all the satanic oppression. He came to topple one who came before time, sets himself up as a sort of king of humanity, the enemy himself, Satan. Jesus comes to topple all of that. And in the end, Jesus topples, among other things, death. Like Jesus is doing something much bigger and much more powerful. And this should give me great confidence that history really is his story. Jesus, I think, actually refers to this once. It's hidden, though. I'm going to read it for you. It's in Luke chapter 20. Let's see if I can find it. Luke chapter 20. Jesus tells a parable here. It's called the parable of the tenants. And the parable of the tenants basically says that there's, there's a guy with a vineyard, right? And he rented it to some tenants who refused to pay. And the owner sends messengers to collect the rent, but they're beaten and they're chased off. And finally, the owner sends his son. But the tenants of the, of the, of the thing, right, <laughs> do the unspeakable and they kill the son. And at that point, the owner returns, kills the tenants, gives the vineyard to the others, And then we get this verse, just kind of out of nowhere, Luke chapter 20, verse 17. I'm going to back up verse 16. Jesus said, what will the owner do then, right, when the, the, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill the tenants. He'll give the vineyard to the others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them. Jesus said, this is what the meaning of it of that which is written says that he refers to Psalm 118 here, that the stone the builders rejected had become the cornerstone or the chief cornerstone. This this theme is picked up in the rest of the New Testament, that Jesus is the, the stone the builders rejected. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, if you will. And Jesus says, verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. That is to say that when in humility I fall on Christ, I am broken to pieces. But anyone on whom it falls, the chief cornerstone, anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. This, I think, a reference to Daniel 2. The crushing. Have you ever had the sense that Jesus is weak? I doubt you do, but I think the world sees him this way. That Jesus is weak because he is passive that he is timid, that he is nothing to be concerned about because Jesus, after all, is kind and gracious and merciful and compassionate, forgiving and loving. That Jesus is like someone that you can just like not worry about, like Nebuchadnezzar, like, oh, this is no problem. I don't have to worry about this because one day at the last minute on my deathbed, I can make one of those deathbed confessions. And frankly, I've been there for deathbed confessions and they're glorious. 
When a person in their 70s or 80s says, you know what, Jesus, I have done it all wrong and I turn to you, it's all grace. I don't deserve any of it, but I ask for it. That is done with weeping and tears. And when I've seen it happen, it's beautiful and glorious. But we presume upon God to say, one day, because God is weak, I will be able to live however I want and then one day do that. This Jesus, not so weak. And if you think about the strength it takes to show real love, real mercy, real compassion, this is not an act of weakness. Is actually the strength of God to do what Jesus did. Because <laughs> if I were God, let's be honest, I'm not God. You're not God. We all think like Nebuchadnezzar were God. But if we were God, we'd just wipe all the humans out and start over. Tell me you haven't thought it a hundred thousand times. So Jesus gives us this picture, right? That he is the stone the builders rejected. There's a whole beautiful picture of that. It comes out of Psalm 118. The, the story behind it is that they were building the temple and there was this stone that was, that all the stones were cut for the temple, not where the temple was assembled so that, that there was no noise pollution to pollute the holiness of the temple grounds. And they sent down this stone and nobody knew what to do with it. So they set it aside. It didn't fit anything. It didn't make any sense. And they built the whole thing and they had the last piece to put in. And they sent to the architects and said, where's this last stone? And they said, we sent it forever ago. What are you talking about? And they looked around and they had no idea until they found this last stone. And this last stone was set into place and it was a perfect fit and it was miraculous. Jesus says, essentially, I am that stone. I believe that in a lot of ways, his kingdom is the rock of chapter two and that he as the king of kings is the rock of chapter two. But the kingdom he came to defeat is much broader than the kingdoms of this world, right? First Corinthians chapter 15, he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Sickness ends, suffering ends, sin ends. And as a result, death ends. This is God's victory. In the end, God wins. And we win when Jesus wins. Does this make sense? So if you think about this story and all the other stories really of the Bible, they are about how God has a person, Daniel, and God has favor on this person, Daniel, and this favored person of God is facing an almost certain death and yet God spares them through miraculous intervention. This is actually much the story of the Old Testament. Abraham is spared from death. Isaac is spared from death, right? Jonah is spared from death in the whale. Elijah is spared from death when he asks for it. Daniel is spared from death in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are spared from death in the fiery furnace. All of this points to the rock that would come who was not spared from death. Which takes us 
to that supper we talk about. Why did God not spare his son? It was simple. So that you and I could be in his kingdom. So that you and I could be gracious recipients of a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to pray two prayers. And after I pray both of them, Rachel's going to come. She's going to sing. And while she sings, I want you to pray to God. Thank Him for being as mighty as He is and as gracious as He is. And you would know, I hope, right, that the cracker is meant to represent His body broken for us, 1 Corinthians would say. This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the juice is to represent his blood that is spilled out for us, that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, that whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That's a, that's a miraculous thing in and of itself, that the Lord, the King of kings, would die. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I said we'd pray two prayers. If you need Jesus today, would you pray this first one with me? Dear Jesus, I confess that I need you, but I don't deserve you. And so I ask you to forgive me of my sin, all of them, and take my life, all of me, and make me yours. turn to you. I repent. I ask for your mercy. I beg it, but I don't deserve it. And I put my faith in you, Jesus. I believe you died on a cross for my sins, that they buried you in a borrowed grave, but you didn't stay dead. You're alive today. Since you're alive, be my God. Be my Lord. In Jesus' name. The Bible says that when we pray that prayer, that we receive all of what God is and all of what God offers, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that our sins are washed away because of His body broken for us, His blood spilled for us. Many of you prayed a prayer like that years ago. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today, we'd love to know it and celebrate it with you, even if that's you online. You can tell us on the digital communication card. You can tell someone who invited you. You can email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. Man, we'd love to know and we'd love to celebrate. A lot of you prayed that prayer years ago. Maybe you'd pray this prayer of application with me. Dear Jesus, in a minute, I'll take this bread and I will drink this cup which represent your body and your blood. They indicate my need for you, my salvation from you, and my hope in you. And I remember you today asking, that you would be my satisfaction, that you would be my source of hope, 
that you would be the foundation of my confidence. Thank you, Jesus, that in the end, you win. And we win when you win. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So Rachel's going to sing. And as she does, I want you to pray. You can do that, can't you, with, without me? And when the moment is right for you, I want you to take the body broken for you, and I want you to drink of the blood spilled for you. And we'll go on from there. Cheers.
So you get the picture, don't you? Right? The Bible says that we live in the in-between, the already but not yet, the first coming and the second coming. For centuries, Christians have found their hope in the Jesus who came and was merciful and the Jesus who will come and is the rock that crushes the kingdoms of the world. And the bottom line at the end of the day is that that's where my hope lies. And in the end, God wins. We win when God wins. So we're going to close our worship today. I want to invite you to stand. I want to invite you to sing. Worship. Oh, just worship. so much for being here and worshiping with us today. Hope you have a great week.